0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F.
1: Lock the gates!
0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Clearly, uh, this is not the studio, but I am in a room a hotel room. I, I went ahead and threw for the nice room because I'm here tonight uh, in New York City to take my special. Now, those of you who have been kind of hanging out with me during this process of building towards this know that I'm riding a fine line, that there seems to be a, a way I, I prepare for this stuff that I'm always surprised that it happens. There's there's no healthy way for me to, uh, to get ready for, for an event like this and I've done many specials. there's a lot of things that go through my head. There's a lot of things that uh, that I'm doing to try to maintain some sort of you know groundedness, but none of them are great, but none of them are terrible. You know, I'm a relatively healthy person in terms of physically, but for the f- past month or so, a- as many of you know who have been listening, I've been unable to eat well. I, sorry, New York City, and I'm on the 18th floor. Yet it still comes up through the windows. So you probably can't hear it, but you know I've been you know choking down these cigars to get that nicotine thing. It's I, I'm recording this at 10:30 in the morning, and I've already drank three large cups of coffee and smoked a medium-sized cigar, and my brain is on fire. But this is old school me. You know, it's just the way back when I I did radio with Brendan and the fellas. Uh, I used to just sit there and drink, you know, literally a quart of Dunkin' Donuts coffee and eat a bag of M&M's and just get lit. But now I just seem to be focusing, trying to focus and, and stay with the process of making this special as good as I can make it. I should tell you before I continue rambling that uh, Elvis Mitchell is on the show today. I've kind of known Elvis for years. Um, he's a writer, a professor, a film critic, and the host of the radio show and podcast The Treatment. But we've certainly hung around in the same places before. We've talked to each other for years. I've known this guy, and now he's got a film out. He's a documentary filmmaker now, and he just made the movie "Is That Black Enough for You?" about black cinema from the seventies. And it's great. It's it's a great movie, and I have to uh, confess my ignorance. Now look, I sometimes say things that you you know I don't think through, and that may seem generalizing or or off-putting or um, you know uh, uninformed, because I I kind of fly with a stream of consciousness. But I am certainly willing to learn and adjust and you reflect. On my uh, my ignorance or my uh, mistakes in terms of you know how and what I say. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I mean, doesn't mean I'll stop saying things, but I will think about it. And if I am wrong or incorrect, uh, I I can admit it and I can uh, own it uh, for sure. But this situation with black cinema. I didn't know the history, and for some reason, in my mind, a lot of the black exploitation movies I never saw them because I thought they were campy somehow. I thought that that people watched them, you know, some of them anyways. You know, I've seen some Dolomite movies, I've seen Shaft, I've seen some movies, but I thought, in by and large, that a lot of them were were sort of campy. But I was educated, man. I was schooled by Elvis's movie, and it was uh, enlightening. And exciting to watch the film, and you know, make note of the films that he talks about, which are in the. Uh, and there must be over a hundred. He goes really through the entire history of of black cinema and black independent cinema, which goes back to the silent era. But I watched Coffee for the first time. Uh, with, with Pam Greer for the first time a few weeks ago. And on some level, as a guy who likes film, that seems to be, you know, almost a criminal oversight. I wouldn't say criminal, but ignorant. And it just got me engaged with this history that I didn't know about. And and along with um, a few weeks ago, when I talked to Henry Louis Gates uh, about, uh, you know, the black community building, you know, from the early 1900s or post-Reconstruction, like there's just so much... I don't know, and I'm excited to learn. And this movie was uh, spectacular. Uh, and I was you know, very excited to talk to Elvis about these movies as a guy who should know, and I believe that I should know as somebody who pays attention to movies, about this chunk of film history. And because of his documentary, I now know it. But I've, I've started watching a lot of the films. And, and coffee as a fan of 70s films... Was raw and 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 sort of unlike any movie I've ever seen in its depiction of of drug use from the era and just you know power dynamics you know within the uh, criminal world to a certain degree and and also the 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 story of a female heroine which was you know totally compelling but Elvis really goes into uh, a a lot about black history uh, in in film and also about the appropriation of it obviously uh, not unlike almost every uh, art form, uh, that the white cinema took from it. So I highly recommend it, and and I will talk to him in a few minutes, but I'm excited about it. But I don't know if anything is going to be as exciting as last night I went to a screening of Two Leslie. We did a Q&A, me and Andrea Riceborough and Michael Morris, and uh, Brooke Shields was in the audience. Brooke Shields was in the audience, and I could not even take it. Look, you know Brooke Shields is Brooke Shields. Everybody in the world knows Brooke Shields. I feel like I grew up with Brooke Shields. Now you know from this podcast that you know I have a certain familiarity with people based on their their public facing beings, and uh, and sometimes it, you know I just I, there's there's no boundary there. Like I approach them like some of you approach me, you know, with complete sense of, of familiarity. And Deborah Winger was there, another person who is one of my Instagram ladies, but I've never met her and and I didn't recognize her at first. And it was sort of awkward when I finally realized she didn't know this. But when I finally realized, I'm like, oh my God, it's Deborah Winger. Like there was a moment there. I was like, who's this amazing uh, woman talking to me? And, I, and then I just sort of like, it took me a second to realize she was there with her son. So I got to meet her and talk to her, which was great. But uh, I saw Brooke Shields. And as everyone was walking out to go to this after party thing, I just said, how are you, Brooke Shields? <laughs> and uh, she says, I'm good. Good job. And and she was walking out. But she went to the thing, and I got to meet her and talk to her. And I got to say, it was a life highlight. I, I don't even, I can't explain it. But I feel like I ha- grew up with Brooke Shields. We're roughly the same age. And I remember her from the beginning of her Brooke Shields-ness. And it was just really... uh She's really uh, sweet and, and uh, funny, and it was fun to meet her. I, I can't really explain it, but uh, I don't know that anything's going to top me meeting Brooke Shields, and I don't even know why that is, but it is. So after tonight, my special will be taped, and my tour will be done. Uh, that's more than a year of being on the road hammering this set. Uh, it's a long time. And something I've been wondering about for a while is what exactly I can do for fun you know, after this, do I even know how to have fun? This is a big question in my life. And, and I don't know, but I, I now I, I have some, you know, time on my hands and I should be able to find this out. And I've been, or hopefully be able to discover the fun. I've been talking about this with my producer, Brendan. In fact, we are thinking about making a, uh, a separate series about it. Me trying to have fun. We thought of maybe doing it with Marvel movies or some other kind of pop culture distraction, but nothing was really sticking with me. So we got on the mics last week and, and and talked about it again because Brendan had an idea.
2: This got me thinking about something. I'll uh-huh. tell you exactly where I was thinking about it. In fact, I'll show you where I was thinking about it. Do you have your phone with you? Yeah. I just texted you something. See if it comes through.
0: Um. Oh, yeah.
2: So that's a, a video from a televised pay-per-view from uh, two Saturdays ago. And if you play it, you'll see a guy uh standing next to a professional wrestler like cheering out of his mind yeah a guy with a blue mask and glasses that's you yeah (laughs) when was this Uh, like two weeks ago (laughs) who is that guy uh, yeah. Who is that? Who is who? The guy cheering? That was me. Yeah. Uh, the guy I was cheering for was the champion of uh, uh, AEW, which is all elite wrestling. Yeah. And I went to it in New Jersey with uh, with our friend Chris Lopresto. who oh, yeah. Uh, we used to work on Morning Sedition with us. Yeah. And it was a sold out show at a hockey arena, about 12,000 people. And I was standing there going like this is just amazing. Like I you know, I used to go to this stuff as a little kid. It's kind of had time in my life where I've totally ignored it and did, but but the the sense memory was there. Like yeah. to immediately get locked back into it. And I really have with especially with this promotion because the the things that they're doing with it are very recognizable to me as exactly why I started enjoying it in the first place.
0: Well, over the years, you know, because we've worked together for so long, you know, I've, I've, I've had to learn from wrestlers because you, your interest in wrestlers has brought a lot of wrestlers around. I mean, I've yeah. interviewed several big wrestlers.
2: And I think people wonder, you probably even wondered it for a time, like, but, you know, it's stupid if you know it's fake. What What's the point then? Why, are you, why do you care about it? And, you know, it's very easy to answer that for me, especially now having, you know, uh, lived most of my life dealing with entertainment, is I don't care. Like, there's nothing about it that i'm even worried i'm not even concerning myself with artifice in fact it's very real from the sense that does the guy or woman who's playing the role and trying to get something across through this tremendously athletic difficult performance do they deliver it right yeah there's this amazing guy right now that's at the top of that um promotion aew his name is uh mjf he, he's a uh, it stands for Maxwell Jacob Friedman. And his gimmick is just like, he's this Jewish kid from Long Island who thinks he's better than you. That's his, even his catchphrase. <laughs> I'm better than you and I know it. And I'm better than you and you know it. And he uh, he did this whole bit that he was angry with the promotion and because they, they weren't taking him seriously enough and he left. And they played it off this way. They let him leave for six months, three months. And he was gone. He was off TV. Then he comes back and he's, going to challenge for the title, because now he's back and he's got the rights to challenge for the title. And he goes to a guy who's managing the champion, and he's like, I'm doing this because of you. Because you used to work for WWE, and you did not hire me. And in fact, you sent me these emails encouraging me to keep sending you tapes and to keep uh, you know, keep in touch and try to get a job with you. And then sent me this email, and he reads this email in the ring to this guy, Saying uh, you're not right for us, please stop sending us emails. And um, you know WWE hires world class athletes. Maybe someday you'll be one. You're not one. And he's like, that email made me want to kill myself. And uh, <laughs> at every day I've lived my life thinking I'm going to stick it to you, right? And this guy's supposed to be the heel, right? Yeah. And so the 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 manager he says to him, look, I. I'm glad you feel that way. Like, and frankly, when I send an email like that to you or anybody else, I'm trying to light a fire under you. He's like, I used to work on the carnival circuit. I would get my face beat in every night by these guys when I was 17 and I'd be crying in my bed, bleeding. Like, if you're worried about an email, you've had an easy life. And he's like, stop taking shortcuts. Stop doing all these things. You, you come out, you cheat, you're, you're, you claim you're better than people and that just try to do it, earn it, right? And so they set this up. He finally says, I'm going to fight. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to throw away my, the things I used to cheat. I'm not going to hit people with, 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 with foreign objects and that. We're gonna, yeah. I'm going to do it for real. Yeah. And I'm going to this show. This was the show that Chris and I went to. And Chris and I are both like, well, he's got to cheat to win, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and in fact, what would be the best thing is if he is going to cheat and then doesn't and the manager realizes he did the right thing. And so the manager turns on his own guy and cheats for him, right? Yeah. I and mean, that would be the best story, that the guy, the manager <laughs> finally sees in him what he wanted to see yeah. in him. Well, sure enough, that is exactly what happened. The <laughs> guy, guy gets down to the ring, yeah. he's gonna hit him with, he has a giant ring, he's gonna put the ring on the finger. The manager says, like, pointing at him, you're not gonna do that. He takes the ring off, he throws it away. But now the guy, the champion, puts him in the sleeper hold. And yeah. He's fucked, right? Yeah. The, the ref is knocked down. And yeah. <laughs> the guy says, go wake up the ref. The manager says, go wake up the ref. He's You've got to wake him up so that he can see you got this guy in the sleeper hold. As he turns to go get the ref, the manager slips him a pair of brass knucks to MJF, yeah. who gets up, <laughs> uses him. He becomes the champion. <laughs> I was so thrilled. That the story played out like that. I don't, like, it was was not that I wanted it to be real. It was that I wanted them to really tell the story that made the most emotional sense, that could go on the most ups and downs.
0: Right. It's a script thing.
2: Yes, but here's the other thing. When you really look into what it is, like, they're not scripting it from the perspective of they're writing it down on a piece of paper and here's you guys' roles and what you're supposed to do. At least yeah. that's not what these guys are. WWE does that to an extent. Yeah. This is all improv, yeah, right? Yeah, right. These guys sit and they talk about, the like, much like you and I did when we had Mick Foley on. Yeah. Here's what's going to happen. Ultimately, we're trying to get to here. It's up to you to perform your part, so we can get there, right? right? Yeah. Nobody said to you, Mark. Mark, here's everything you have to say. <laughs> yeah, I've done
0: movies like that.
2: Exactly. Right. It's it's very very close yeah. to a to a large long form improv. Yeah. All of this is to say, this is leading up to the fact that um, uh, you and I are going to go uh, enjoy this the way I just did, live and in person. Uh, out in Los Angeles on, on January 11th. They're gonna be out there at the LA Forum. You're flying out? I have out? tickets for us. Yes, I'm flying <laughs> out.
0: All right then. And we're gonna then. go
2: to AEW Wrestling. I'm in. I'm ready. I
0: mean, I got choked. I I got choked up. You telling me the story about the kid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, this, this will be a a good test too to see like what the type of character that someone does as a wrestler, particularly not a cartoonish wrestler, like all these wrestlers in this AEW are just generally people and they're not playing a a cartoon. Right. And so I would be, I'm going to be interested to see what you wind up latching
0: onto. Exciting. Good plan. Got a, we got a, a, a fun field trip coming up. Okay, that's a tease of a longer episode we just put up for Full Marin subscribers where we listen to an old wrestling angle we did on the radio with pro wrestler Mick Foley. But it's also a tease of this wrestling field trip Brendan and I are going to do. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to document all of it with some clips here on the show and full episodes uh, on WTF+. Plus. So if you want to subscribe to that, go to the link in the episode description or click on WTF+. Plus over at WTFpod.com. I'm gonna be a wrestling guy. Well, I'm gonna to go to the wrestling thing. I'm gonna see if it clicks. Is it ever too late to lock in with the excitement and drama and, and energy of professional wrestling? I, I don't know. We will find out. I, I am sort of I would be amazed and somewhat disturbed but excited to become like a an all-in wrestling fan at 59 years old. It's possible. Brendan has liked wrestling, loved wrestling since he was a kid. So I'm definitely going with the right guy. So look, Elvis Mitchell is here. Uh, his documentary, Is That Black Enough For You?, is now streaming on Netflix. And uh, I, I was thrilled and uh, grateful in, in a way to watch it and, and be, you know, educated through this curated experience that Elvis put together. And we talk about it now. i feel like there i need some background because like i was i watched the the doc twice you watched it twice yeah it's a lot
3: in there dude It, it should have been two or three episodes you know that okay didn't you the Fincher said when we went to talk, where he goes, no, this has to be five or six hours because you can't get this in two hours. It's Maybe. true,
0: man. It's like It was like taking a, you know, it was like uh, uh,
3: almost like a, a whole uh, semester. Good. I wanted to be compared <laughs> to education. Thank you. Oh, it was like taking a class. It was like Harold Ramis and, and no, stripes. but it, but I mean, you are educating.
0: I mean, that's you know the thing is, I'm I, you know if anybody's your audience, I am. I'm a relatively smart guy that didn't know half that shit or three quarters of it even. Really? Yeah, that's, that's man. Shocking to me. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I don't. Uh, you know, I'm not a total film nerd. I'm not. I would never accuse you that. But yeah. you
3: also, but you're a student of popular culture. That's
0: right. But but like it was just sort of this. Uh, not unlike, I guess, many primarily white people, uh, it was sort of a blind spot. You know, I would have had to go back, and I, obviously I went back at some point and kind of rewatched the 70s anti-hero movies, which, you know, you sort of use in this movie to make an example, using your doc to make an example of of how the black filmmakers handled that and what they did with that and how they shifted that dialogue around the anti-hero. But, like, I didn't... I No one was leading me that way. So... You but, know. That, but
3: that's the point of the dot because yeah. nobody was leading you that that's way. That's right. Mean, yes, exactly. Well,
0: that's what I'm saying. Like you know, it, it, but to my uh, like my fault in in not knowing it is that I didn't take it upon myself to go watch all those movies because again I didn't really have guidance and I think that if anything like I, I was wondering if you had a book so, like I asked. The publicist, I said, can you give me a list of every movie that's in this doc? 165 movies. Well, that's what box. I got. I, they said, it's 165. Here's 12. But how are you going to do that? I mean, people always ask me that shit. You know, you should have some sort of primer that goes
3: with it. Well, what we have is the ability to pause and write stuff down now. It used to be, if you saw this, the kind of thing you rent it or whatever. Is I like- get it. Sure. But, you know- I almost did that. Yeah, so now- <laughs> It's so now I'm gonna have to. <laughs> I have no issue with people yeah. pausing and writing things down. I mean, I wish you'd had a chance to see it theatrically, hmm. just because. Oh, all that stuff it, looks so good. It, it's, it, but it's just this stuff was made for yeah. movies, and to see that shot of Billy Dee Williams leaning into the frame, yeah, you can yeah. start before his face turns. And Lady Sings the boys Yes, yeah, yeah, so yeah, you, yeah. You can see the the. His manicure just light up. Like, well, right, he's light up like
0: Marlena Dietrich. Right, yeah, movie. and he was so excited about that. You talked to him. I it was it was good to see him. I didn't know he was still
3: alive. Oh God, he's and the greatest guy, and completely seems like a great guy, self-effacing. I mean, yeah. giggling. Yeah. Yeah. fifty years later, like he's still fifteen years yeah, old. It was hilarious. And and I just saw
0: Glenn Terman in in, uh, in that uh, Del Toro sort of series. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Horror, antholo- the horror anthology. The horror anthologies. Yeah, still working a lot. Still
3: working. And, and but again, another great guy. And yeah, there's so much you can. I mean, there's so much you. Got left out we could have talked about the fact that he was one of the three people up for the role of of Han Solo in Star Wars oh really
0: yeah Yeah, well that's the point that's the thing I'm saying is that there was so much in there I had I had to watch it twice I I watched it twice because I missed things like there there were certain departures within the narrative of the doc that could have been their own half hour 45 minutes you know, look like, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, well, just more of the music and the the, the power of soundtracks, and also just the are we conver- recording that
3: by the way? Oh yeah, okay, and
0: just and and also the, you know the uh, the two kind of like because it seems that you're making you're contextualizing something, but you're also
3: making an argument in this movie in a way. Oh, completely. Making yeah, an argument. yeah, yeah. That's, and- that's the point. It's to make an argument. Just because so much of this, and again, you as well as anybody, a really smart consumer of pop culture know that there becomes this kind of binary way that black culture is viewed. Right. It's either this or that. Yeah. It's black exploitation or not. Right. No, it's more than that. Right. And so, what I wanted to do is, first of all, to do this thing that you never see with black movies where you see a compendium like for the Oscars, the greatest clips of all time. Yeah. There's a bunch of clips like Godfather, whatever, and then there's always... They call me Mr. Tips. It's right. always the same black clip. That's right. It's always the one black clip. At. It's like yeah. as if there's nothing else. Sure. And I thought, oh, if nothing else, I wanted to make a movie that could be all these. That could be its own compendium of the greatest clips of all times that were never included. Right. Just seeing again, Billy Dee Williams lean into the frame. Oh yeah. And he's actually giggling yeah. because he can't believe himself. That, he can't even stay in character. That he's getting he, that kind of. He's attention. so tickled. But how long did it take you, like, the, what I was
0: going to do is, like, fill in some backstory in terms of, I mean, you've been a movie critic for a long time. Sure. But this
3: is, you, you, where you, where'd you start? at The New York Times? Golly, no, I started, gee, where'd I start? At the L.A. Weekly. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I was at But film. where'd you
0: get uh, your, your uh, education around film?
3: Watching movies, it's it's just watching. But I mean, movies. did you study film or anything? No, no that's for SAP, studying ah. film. No, I studied, except for the people that take your classes. Yeah, <laughs> poor poor kids, dear God in heaven. But yeah. it's a no. I got my degree in English literature. Right. So, so my mother said, you know, don't you already speak English? Yeah. What are you gonna do with that? Yeah. I'm qualified to drive the Uber that brought me here. I sure. should have done that. It would have been here on time. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I always watched movies, and as Get into in, in, in the documentary had this weird kind of foundation laid by my grandmother who would yeah. say stuff like, The Andy Griffith show is on. There are no black people. In I that. love that Where quote. Where do you think you are? There are no black people in that show. Where do you think they are? And I'm like, I'm six. What are you doing to me? But. It's also this thing, too, because also we're roughly the same age. Remember that time when if you saw a white person and a black person in something, it was adult entertainment? They'd just be talking. Yeah, I, I don't know if I ever registered that, but but I guess that's if true. If you're a black person, you kind of go, whoa. Like um, what, this movie has TV members as a kid, My Sweet Charlie, with yeah. Al freeman Juman and, and Patty Duke. She was pregnant. He was some draft dodger who was yeah. trying to help her out. Yeah, they, there's nothing remotely sexual between them, but because she's pregnant and he's there, it's adult entertainment. It, like these things always struck me as being completely insane or this double standard where. In movies, you know, during the Hayes Code era, obviously, yeah. when there's a married couple, they would be twin beds. Sure. And as a kid, i watched this and think, wow, white people are crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because you never saw married black people. Yeah. Therefore, you thought white people lived different than we did.
0: Well, I think you touched on so much stuff in, you know, sometimes in passing, you know, like that quote from your grandmother is great, but also the the idea that, you know, the... The group of Jewish immigrants that started the motion pictures, you know, that Neil Gabler sort of argument of, of creating a facsimile or, or uh, an idealized America uh, through uh, through the films that they could pass in or that they could,
3: you know, that they could manufacture but, you know, a place is, where they could live. There's the fascinating thing about this, Mark. So much yeah. of this is built on this weird, weird self-hatred mm. or self-abnegation, this idea that these people creating myths. And there's a myth in American movies that really doesn't exist in any other place where yeah. they're about heroism yeah. and about standing up and taking this kind of stand. Yeah. And so we'll have that clip in the movie, this weird thing, that this freestone had watching uh, well, the, the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah, right, right. Well, Morgan watching, Freeman Rita is watching Rita Hayworth. Watching Rita Hayworth. Yeah. And the part wasn't written for a black person. Yeah. In fact, everybody in Hollywood wanted that part. You know? Yeah. Charlie Sheen. Everybody who was hot wanted that role. <laughs> when but, Charlie Sheen was hot. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that could be its own separate documentary. <laughs> yeah, sure. But um, Morgan Freeman gets it, and he says, "I love when she does that shit with her hair." You kind of go, "Wow, that's about black men having been indoctrinated to have to see straight hair like this." And you also think too that Rita Hayworth was a Latina who had her basically her skin bleached and had her hair dyed. I mean, so. This, there's so many different levels oh, yeah. of, of of reality being denied that they're touched on,
0: and you and film. you explore that you know pretty pretty thoroughly in terms of of people doing all types of brownface, you know, in in Hollywood. That there's an idea in the movie that you kind of you kind of blow through, which is that the entitlement of of white culture thinking they could do it better, like in that I'd never heard it framed like that. I I mean I always assumed that it was an idea of sort of just what we do, but I didn't think of you know, the the superiority thing, you know, that you know, we can mimic it
3: better. Oh, oh sure, I mean, it's this I was close to Pauline kale, who's yeah. a film critic in New Yorker, and every once in a while we have this conversation about Olivier and Othello, and one of her intimations was, you know, that he could do it better than a black actor. Yeah. I don't think that's true. I'm pretty sure he can't be a black person better than a black person. I'm not going to argue with you that he's talented. So that becomes this kind of generational thing, too, which is why I wanted to include both Olivier and Orson Welles doing that. Doing Othello. But But don't you, like, isn't there any sort of pass given for tradition and shakespearean theater that's not the question i mean yeah. the question is there's the, the become there is this kind of entitlement that comes in this yeah. and then there's also this kind of regard for that too right well you know he's doing othello and uh-huh. of course he can bring something to it the fact is for all that kind of tradition it also became this kind of de facto segregation where black actors weren't allowed to do it. So that's the other side of the coin. Well, isn't that it? well,
0: that's the thread through the entire thing. That you know that initially in film, you know, blacks were
3: depicted as clowns or slaves. And then in blackface, yeah, even blacks playing those, yeah, and and then that leads us to Bugs Bunny and and Mickey right. Mouse and wearing those gloves, right, which clearly come from blackface, from minstrelsy, yeah, absolutely, yeah,
0: and but that but what was interesting and in, and in, in telling was that you know that lasted for for decades and decades, right? So that and, and it, but. The counter story that I didn't know about was the history of black cinema, you know, even starting in the silence. That I just talked to uh, to Henry Louis Gates about his documentary about the rise of of black cities, black towns, black banks, black fraternal orders that were sort of you know put together in in as a a sort of reflection of white culture in order to have their own communities, right? Because we were segregated. From exactly. What was interesting was that you you were able to to find and, and really kind of put into context context, these early independent black filmmakers who were directors during the silence- Not just you- directors,
3: but directors, producers, actors, yeah. writers, actors, and had to book the theaters. I mean, in effect, it's the black film version of the Negro Leagues where you have to do all this work that certainly no white director right. ever had to do. Well, I think that what my point was that was probably in
0: you know just collusion with- uh, if that's the word, uh, with with the sort of burgeoning, you know, black business world and the burgeoning black communities, where they were like, well, why
3: can't we have this business too? But also, this is thing where black people want to see movies. It's as simple as that. It, yeah. In addition to the creating this this parallel universe. Where you have this thriving black, black middle class yeah. that grows in Chicago right. that creates Ebony magazine yeah. and Jet magazine yeah. because you're never going to get into Time or Newsweek, and then because of Ebony and Jet, there's the exposure of the Emmett Till picture because oh, the white press yeah. isn't going to cover that. that. Was, I didn't know, but that that was powerful in the
0: in the doc. You know, you really packed it in on that doc because that those moments of of that really landing something for black people was like a, a moment I didn't
3: really know about. I think in some weird way, it's like I've been waiting my entire life to do this. Yeah, it I mean, seemed like it. Like back and forth, you mentioned Skip Gates. And when I met him, I did the Elaine Locke lectures at Harvard about mm-hmm. 20 years ago now. Yeah. And in the way, the lectures I gave, were, a lot of this material was in now, those lectures. Just thinking about that, because there's often so much sort of rage and characterization. If you see Step and Fetch it. Yeah. You can feel the anger in the performance that's directed into this other kind of physical physicality, yeah, right. That becomes sort of subtext. Yeah. And and what I wanted to do was to make a film or a project rather about all those those displaced emotions. What happens to them finally, so then they get to explode in this decade from sixty eight to what was that quote about uh what happens to those emotions it was from Ralph Ellison oh no this the dream deferred that's from raising the sun oh raising the sun yeah yeah, yeah yeah I mean it's the play that yeah, yeah. it's the line that leads to raising the sun from the poem yeah 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 what happens to the dream deferred it's but it's 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 it led to raising the sun but it also led to these I mean you think about I mean as a kid I remember seeing. With well, my, in fact, my we just had a screening at AFI Fest, and my sisters were there. Yeah, and they remember. Oh yeah, you remember what our boyfriends were saying to you about Night of the Living Dead? I went vividly because yeah, see that's another context that I didn't know
0: about. You know that that you put it into this historical frame, but you know, kind of moving like let me try to keep it in some sort of you know timeline because you, you sort of do this uh, it, by putting into historical context. You know, it, it, you kind of take it up through. A quick introduction of all the movies of how black, the word black, and and black actors and 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 uh, performers were represented. That you know everything shifted for you in the sixties, but all that leading up to it um, was a very sort of quick indictment and 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 the groundwork for really how Hollywood sees you know black people, and and you have these actors like uh, Fishburne and. Uh, Sam Jackson? Yeah, Sam Jackson. You're talking about their experiences about interacting with movies and having no real black role models, but then having to, as you said, kind of adapt to possibility that movies were for everybody and that they wanted to still be in the movies but it, it was erased for them that they never had representation
3: oh god it's this thing that and I was really very careful about doing this yes. if you notice a number of people Sam Jackson and Fishburne yeah. and Charles Burnett yeah and Suzanne DePass talk about I wish I had a black cowboy I right. wanted a black Western now it's not that there weren't black Westerns but because you're in the era where Michelle was making films you have a Western that would also be a murder mystery and a screwball comedy those are the silent right no no these were soundies. Okay. But th- all these things would be crammed into one right venue or one film because that's what you did. You thought I may never get a chance to make another movie. I'm gonna pack in as much as I can. Kind of what I did with this actually. Yeah. So um but what you never had was that that sort of thing and like all these people, Sam Jackson, Fish yeah. I know, a lot of people like me you grew up in the South or you had relatives in the South. Yeah. So you saw working farms. My grandmother had a working farm. Yeah. Which is to say you saw a black person on a horse. Yeah. And seeing a black person on a horse, what does that tell you? At the very least, they can control the direction that they want to go in. Yeah. They may be stopped, but they have that control. So just being denied that kind of image in a movie, what does that say to you? What does that do to you? If you're... Black people in Westerns are basically standing on the porch wearing a bow tie, passing out drinks, or waiting to be sent home from the fields instead of being on a horse. That gives agency. That gives power. And that takes us to me, and I mentioned this a couple of times before, but when I heard Paul Thomas Anderson talking about Buckswope in in Boogie Nights, he said, I thought it would be kind of funny and absurd to have a black cowboy. I thought, why is that absurd? And this is somebody who's grown up in movies and knows movies, but that's the message even he got from the movies, that the idea of a black cowboy is absurd. And even that word is kind of a basically an epithet. I mean, nobody was called a cowboy as a compliment. It was something that we used for black ranch hands. Yeah. And also, the,
0: it's like, a, as time has gone on, there was an entire uh, rodeo Kind of uh
3: There's a clip in the movie from Black Rodeo. Yeah. This movie from nineteen seventy two. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And there there were many black cowboys. <laughs> oh my god, of course there were. But we never saw them in the movies. I know, because the mythology of the cowboy in the movies was something
3: different than than the real experience of But the also cowboy. it Again, it, it connotes power and sure, agency. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. And, it is the original kind of movie myth, right? Except if you take that away from black people who are just as responsible sure. for this creation as anything else. Yes. You, you take that away from them, you're saying the message is, the subliminal message that, you that know, black people don't belong doing that kind of thing. It would be absurd to have a black person on a horse. That's what movies were telling us until the 60s. Right. That it was a, an insane idea,
0: and a, a black a person on a horse. a long time and 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 it's still a conversation and it's still not right it's
3: not correct Wouldn't, representation is not correct yet oh god but you know it's i, and I tried to figure it out yeah. i'm glad we're talking about this yes. in, in this way because i tried to figure out the way to phrase that because so often when the word representation comes up yeah. it becomes this kind of buzzword that people kind of fling away oh sure it makes people uncomfortable right. oh how am i going to be judged just, so how do i say this in a way so I, did, I had two tracks. One was that idea of bringing up the Western so you could you could be playing it somehow. Well, there weren't many black cowboys. Why weren't there yeah. that? So it's a question you get to answer yourself rather yeah. than have me pose it for you. But the other part, or the other way to s- offer that question up was for me to say, what's the best way for me to summarize what representation was? If you're a black person, you're wearing a bow tie, you're there to deliver something. <laughs> you're not there to go dancing right. with Ginger Rogers right. or to uh, maybe you get to lead the band. In a short right you know, or or you get to dance and leave, but you don't get to again, I grew up loving screwball comedies i there's probably no bigger admirer of Preston Sturgis than me. He not only made these comedies about that sort of madcap life, but also they were judgments about class and wealth because he bounced back and forth between being poor and being a, a, a creature of society yes. and so for his movies to basically reduce. Black, as soon as you saw a black person in Preston Sturge's movie, there was that ridiculous dialect that no black person actually spoke. I have family from the South. Nobody talked like well,
0: that. I, well, I think what's sad about the idea and the reality of truly institutionalized racism is that, you know, because it, it must make you ask, like, of, of this guy that you respected, is he fundamentally a racist person, or was that just
3: what people did? Certainly, it's this thing that's both, isn't it? You know, yeah. I mean it's, it's people, if you don't have the, I don't know, the wherewithal to bucket, then what happens to now Who are you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's worse than institutionalized. It just becomes inertia. It's easier not to try to move it away. But isn't all that inertia? I mean, I'm just trying yeah. to come up with the trigger okay. words. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But you know, it's certainly that. And what starts to happen, and I was starting to talk about this, with my grandmother is that she would say, in effect... What critical thinkers say, what is not there?
0: Some of the things that, that resonate with me around certainly the line about tuxedos that you had. Then you're able to sort of answer that with uh, Ivan Dixon's movie, right? So in in Ivan Dixon, I'm looking at him like, how do I know him? I only know him from Hogan's Heroes, and he made this movie. What's it called? Spook who sat, the spook who by, sat the the door. by the door. That that caused such. Um, what, what's the word I want? Had controversy. Such a, an impact that, that it was seen as almost
3: a criminal by the FBI, right? Oh, my God. He, I met him. One of the thrills of my life was I got to meet him. Because here's the great thing about this story, right? You know, I showed that clip from that movie, Nothing But a Man, which he did before Hogan's Heroes from 1964. It's Abby Lincoln and Ivan Dixon, like movie stars. Yeah, that this was movie. great.
0: What's her name, that woman? Abby Lincoln.
3: Great. She was a jazz singer and an actor. Beautiful, beautiful oh, clip. But also two people yep. who look in that clip like yep. movie stars Should don't be. they. Yeah. And by the way, a movie from nineteen sixty four with an all Motown soundtrack in yeah. it. It's like it's, you could make that movie today. Yeah. But anyway, so he makes that movie. All this Ivan Dixon stuff for me that sort of came to a head when I asked him, I said, so I noticed as a kid watching Hogan's Heroes that the editor of Hogan's Heroes was Michael Kahn, yeah. who later went on to edit all of Steven Spielberg's movies. Uh uh-huh. He's For the last 40 years, he's been Spielberg's no editor. No kidding. His first two movie jobs, or among his first two movie jobs, are Trouble Man and The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Ivan would tell me that we would sit we'd be invited Al Reddy, the creator of Hogan's Heroes and later produced yeah, The Godfather. I had him here. Yep. Yeah. And a great storyteller. Yeah. He would have these Academy screenings at his house. So so Ivan Dixon yeah. and, and Michael Kahn was sitting in the back row, and I right. would go, I can't do this anymore. This is making me ill. I, can't, I know I have to support my family, but I can't play this guy who sits by the radio in the basement and never leaves the prison camp. Yeah. And Michael goes, listen, when you direct your movie, you let me know and I'll edit it for you. So that's how this bond is forged. Yeah. So this guy who goes on to do Basically, to have be part of Steven Spielberg's aesthetic, yeah. got to start working with Ivan Dixon. Because everything shifted in, what, 68, you think? I, for me, that's the point, just because it becomes I didn't want to do one of these things that's a hundred years of black film, because you know, yeah. I think it's a fool's errand. And no, I thought it was interesting
0: that you stopped it.
3: Yeah, well, But I, you said this is when it ended. It does kind of end there, because w- when the whiz The fails, whiz, yeah, but that's later. But so, 68. But 78 is when it, is when it ends, yeah, yeah, for me. But 68 is just this point where, after Night of the Living Dead, you sort of can't deny it anymore. Right. There's a black action but here. The,
0: well, that's like, you know, I didn't ever read it like that, because I didn't read the papers. I'm not in the black community. I didn't read the criticism of it, that, you know, post-Watts and post riots that, you know, the way that the Night of the Living Dead was received... By the black community was 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 twofold, right? But also that you know Romero, whether he knew it or not, was really
3: making a profound social statement. Do you think that he was conscious of all that? I think he was trying to solve a problem. Then he realized what he had because he, the actor just didn't show up, and he had to do something. And Dwayne Jones just stepped in. It wasn't cast as a black guy. Oh God, wasn't, wasn't written because when you watch the movie, yeah, you realize his race is never mentioned. Yeah, ever. I know it's kind of it, it's you noticed that. I mean, what was your response to it when you saw it as a kid? What do you remember
0: about it? I remembered, like, it, I remember noticing that, that, that you know, this is just a guy, and he's the only black guy in it, and he's the hero of this thing, but it's never, you know, you don't have no backstory, and you don't have, and no one ever mentions it, and there was just by nature of historic, you, you, you know, training, it was awkward. Like, you felt, you know, the white woman, who was hysterical, and she's having to put her trust in this guy who's being
3: decent, it kind of goes against all the tropes, right? It comes as, it's a fascinating, it's almost this joke about, what would Sidney Poitier do if he was surrounded by zombies? This, this kind of question, you thought, well, what would... He tried to charm them first. Maybe, but you know, he know. I mean, he he's always the most able person in any situation. And yeah. lose of the field, he fixes everything. It's like, what can't this guy do? Yeah. Oh, you know, touch one of these women—that's what he can't do. Interesting, but, yeah. You know, but in, in, in *Night of the Living Dead*, he's not treated like any kind of special case. He's the most efficient person. That's there. right. He's kind of like pissed off. They have to do everything, right? Because he realizes that there's so much kind of ineptitude and hysteria around him. He's got to just step up. But again, he's not treated as this exceptional black man. He's just the guy who's doing the job that needs to be done. But there's no way. Re- there's no way to read that ending. Uh, other than a black man getting shot, let me ask you: When you saw that,
0: the, how did it
3: impact you? Do
0: you remember? Did yeah, you? I, 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 do. I, I remember that it became uh, an indictment of of sort of Southern white culture to me. That you know because the way they portrayed those guys with their hats and their guns, and it was a standard kind of uh, lynch mob looking bunch. Sure. That it, you know that there was no way to read it other than you know this was a lesson about racism.
3: Well, for me, it wasn't just southern whites. I mean, growing up in Detroit, and this movie comes out the year after the riots. Sure, you can go. Oh, this could be any place. This right. could be Los Angeles, right? And Charles Burnett certainly makes the case about. you. Well, when I was said, young. I I don't know if I knew everything, but yeah. well, I was a kid, but you know, I was black kid, so probably had a little yeah. different perspective than sure you. You saw did. different things. Yeah, but yeah. Charles Burnett talks about being a kid in in, in L.A. in the '60s, and if you were walking at night, you you're gonna be stopped by. You knew you're gonna be stopped by the, you you stopped by the police, and, and you you felt like you didn't matter. Your life didn't matter. Oh, completely. Yeah. And the movie said that about you, too. Yep. That your life didn't matter.
0: Well, that, well, I thought that was like you know, putting that into context with the, uh, the sort of uh, climate of the country, that, that movie, and then being able to say that you know, some parts of the radical black community
3: thought it was a lesson to not trust or hang around with white people. No, if this is the lesson, if you try to like if you try to be better than this, you try to show them you're be a part of this, or you want to integrate, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to go down like this, you'll be thrown on top of a pile of burning bodies. You couldn't not take that lesson after Malcolm X and Dr. King and Megger Evers. There was too much collateral damage to think anything other than that. But they locked into it
0: absolutely. And the same with that Ivan Dixon movie, which was about a, a guy who got trained by the CIA and then starts a black nationalist movement. That the the CIA and the FBI took it as an instigator, and 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 that he
3: was uh, to be watched. He he told me he said that movie ended his career. He told me that and that United Artists. After 18 months, Ken to and said, here, here's your negative. Why don't you just take this back? This yeah. is yours. They gave him his movie back. Yeah. When does that happen?
0: Well, I mean, the, the struggle of black filmmakers at that time when they were given opportunities, it was this sort of low-stakes gamble most of the time. But it wasn't
3: given opportunity. It was seizing opportunities. Because if you're waiting to be given an opportunity, Not gonna you'd happen. still be waiting. That's what he did. He walked away from a guaranteed job staying on this TV show making pretty good money being a blackface on TV because he couldn't do it anymore yeah. the same thing happens for Melvin Van Peebles he, this is all about seizing opportunities same with Harry Belafonte but earlier, because he produced all those early movies, and then when he saw there wasn't anything for him to do, to me that's the great story of this. That's the story I want to tell. This guy who walked away from this thing that he was built to do, that he trained as an actor. When you hear him sing, he's basically performing those songs as if they're monologues. Yeah, as if he's acting out those songs. So for him to walk away from this thing that he was, I can't think to of stop anybody. acting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and and he also had this great understanding. Or what a character does. I have this clip in the movie from uh, Islands in the Sun, Island in the Sun, rather, where he's wearing this big brown suit that's two sizes too big for him, clearly. Because in those days, even poor people were beautifully dressed. And Harry said, no, I want this suit to look like it's a hand-me-down. Yeah. It's maybe his father's suit and uncle's suit right. that doesn't belong on him. So yeah. we see him, we think, something's wrong, what is it? Right. Yeah, and, the, and the, you know, his tone around
0: not compromising his integrity in terms of how black people are represented was it was interesting you you, you know because it's not it's not bitter but it's angry and and you know the, the it was hard to really sort of decipher
3: his real feelings about sydney i think it's interesting because clearly they love each other right but they took two different paths harry said i'm not going to do this but if sydney hadn't done those movies they wouldn't have got made is the world better off for those movies not having been made? It is not. So I can, my point is, I think you can see both sides. Sure. So that by the end of the movie, because I wrestle with how to deal with Sidney Poitier, because there's been so much said about him, and and, and it's kind of this undercurrent for me. There are two themes. One is a we- wasted opportunity. Yeah. That all these, you know, Rupert Cross, who never got to do what he should have done, or dying. Was he Sands, the one, that, the, the leukemia guy? Yeah, the one who was supposed to be in The Last Detail, who Bob Town told me that he was like this incredibly charismatic figure that women loved yeah. and and men admired. They weren't even jealous because they thought, we can't even do what he does. Yeah, He was just kind of unbelievable. That's a great, like, great and, movie, too. Yeah, and but, they, they were supposedly co-stars. Yeah. They, everybody realized in the 1950s, Rupert Cross is a 6'4 Jamaican. He's never going to get hired. He's never going to be a movie Cassavetes star. use him. Cassavetes use him. Not only that, if you listen to Jack Nicholson's voice... You listen to that kind of snarl mm, mm. that kind of empty laugh of his i think he's doing rupert cross you can hear that he's absorbed crossed it as an actor i've always
0: believed that well i like those kind of connections that you make as a film critic in this movie because you can't help yourself so like the, that's why i had to watch it twice too is that there's so many little kind of connections you make that just kind of blow by and you're kind of like wait a minute you know but but because like you can't help yourself but that's sort of like the reason why i think it should have been longer but also you know it makes it sort of dense you know the the connection between Robert Downey Sr., Robert Downey Jr., Robert Downey Sr. making Putney Swope, which was had a tremendous impact on independent film and, and a way and an impact on how blacks were represented in movies. But yet he didn't have the confidence to let his lead speak for himself. So Robert Downey Sr. does the the ADR and talks for the main black character who is the center of the goddamn thing. And then you kind of connect it to uh, uh, Tropic Thunder with uh, Downey's award nominated performance where he's basically doing blackface.
3: And still, so, like, and that goes right by. I mean, that's I just that's twenty seconds. I could, but I could have done more because if you listen to Putney Swope, you can hear it's clearly Downey doing a lot of voices in it. So, yeah. it's what, so but what, how do you playing? feel about that? Again, I feel like this is somebody who wanted to get his movie made and didn't trust his performance. And I asked Antonio about it goes there's a kind of power that that I think that he said he thought that Downey was looking for. Downey Senior had that that Arnold just wasn't that kind of actor. Yeah. That Arnold had the look, but he didn't have the sound. Oh, that, the lead, Putney. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this actor, Arnold So,
0: Johnson. So let's go back to, like, 68. So now, like, because this opens a door. Like, so whether, you, you know, however you're conflicted about Sidney Poitier, those two movies, and I read that the Mark Harris book, you know, which I thought was great. Yeah, absolutely great. And, I mean, it definitely informed a lot
3: of what, you know, some of what you It's one of doing. the reasons I thought this could be a book, because I thought... Th- it should be a book. I don't know. Why isn't it a book? Because everybody turned it down. Everybody turned it down twice, I should say. Because I was how really, how is it not a book? The, all right, you, oh, I you, get you, it. You, I, all right. Because, yeah, I pitched it with Toni Morrison writing an introduction. She offered those lines. You couldn't get a university press to fucking take it? Nobody wanted this thing.
0: Jesus Christ. That seems criminal. Okay. But, all right, so so Harris and you uh, you know, both sort of posit this idea that those two movies, that, that was the beginning of a lot of things. Sure. Black representation in a different way, but also black money-making possibility at the box office, and then in some ways opened the door for for black artists to take more chances. It should have,
3: because you look at 1968 as being going from Night of the Living Dead yep. to these two Sidney Poitier movies being Oscar nominees. Same year. In the same year. These, these events are seven, at the same time. And Sidney Poitier is now the number one box office star in the world. If these two examples shouldn't say, we were wrong to be racist. Because right. the, the thing you always hear, and believe me, I've written these pieces, every once in a while you write this piece about why is there more black representation in Hollywood? And they go, I don't care. You know, I, If somebody's green or blue or orange, I just want their money. But that's not true. Right. It's clearly not true. Right. I, mean, I have to tell you, a couple of years ago, uh, after George Floyd and all these sort of people were, were impaneling themselves, yeah. I started getting all these calls. Um, so we're going to put together this blue ribbon commission, and, and and we just feel so torn about what's going on now. We just wondered, could you join our commission and help us figure <laughs> out what to do? I went, no, I don't have the time. And here's my answer. Hire black people. Yeah. Hire two. Yeah. Not one, because there's one, He's gotta, they, that person has to represent everybody. Yeah. Two, so there are two different yeah. points of view, and you see that... Is not monolithic. Hire two black girls. You must get asked to do that shit all the time. I just started saying no to it because, like, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's not a hard problem to solve. Yeah. that's why I say in nineteen sixty eight, you've got in the heat of the night. Yeah. and to, to, uh, in the heat of the night, and and guess who's coming to dinner? On one hand, yep. and Night of the Living Dead on the other. If this isn't proof that there is box office power in having black stars, two studio films to an independent film that was so underestimated they didn't even bother to copyright it. They forgot to do that. Yeah. So it's public domain. So these between these three movies, there's so much box office generated. Shouldn't that be the fulcrum that makes you go, let's push racism out of the way and start to integrate? And it still doesn't happen. It still becomes about people seizing opportunity. It's about Melvin going from Watermelon Man to going, I can't do this again, to making Sweet Sweet Peck's Badass Song. And that clip we have, which is still mind-blowing to me, where the police car is on fire, and somebody walks up exit yeah, and, and opens the door. You go, guy out. oh, my God, that's yeah. dope, that door... Yeah. It's hot metal. And he just grabs it and opens the door. You kind of go... All right. Again, that clip shouldn't be any some compendium of the greatest film clips of all time. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, but so the turn... You know, you kind of hang it on Gordon uh, Parks and and Van Peebles to, to, as the big sort of shifters of the of the um, paradigm a little bit, right?
3: Yeah, with I mean, their movies. Because Gordon Parks, but again, Gordon Parks has proven himself as this incredible talent. And so when he gets to do his studio movie, the first studio movie directed by an African American, he has to write, direct, produce, and he composes a score, right? I mean that's crazy. It's crazy, but it's it's <laughs>
0: it's honest representation. Yeah.
3: You know. I mean, but I also think it's Parks' thing too that I'm going to do all these things because it's a thing he said to me. I thought I was going to never direct another movie again. I thought they'd take this chance on me. If it fails, no black person's going to get another studio movie. So I'm going to do everything I ever wanted to do, like that great shot of getting back to westerns, of those horses, yeah. silhouetted oh, by the that end, yeah. sunrise, right, and those kids getting on, the, it's yeah. Like, it's mind-blowing. What's that movie called again? That's The Learning Tree. Yeah.
0: The thing that was sort of uh, I think new for me outside of all of it. Thank you uh for doing what you did. The, the label of black exploitation of, of those films from the 70s. What you know, I think what what that was in my mind was something campy. Was it was something right? So so, like, I didn't pay attention to it because I thought it was a, 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 low, a, a, a sort of, you, you know, kind of people liked it because it was kind of, uh, it, it represented something goofy, not something real, right? So, I got, I'm the guy who watches your documentary two nights ago, the first time, and I got to watch Coffee for the first time
3: for the first time because of the that the black exploitation epithet you kind of dismissed as being joking because right because your movie your documentary i am got
0: to, and it's my fault but I you know cuz I like Pam Greer I've seen her in a few things but I didn't I contextualized you know the raging bull easy rider thing the 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 sort of you know the white guys hijacking Hollywood and doing the anti hero thing but you know I watched coffee for the first time
3: yeah. and and it's grittier than any of that shit and it's more real life it's it's raw shit, man. It's what Toni Morrison said. It's the quote that Toni Morrison said that having the movie. It's just also this thing too where you hear, "Oh, coffee, she's badass." And Tony said, "Toni Morrison, go." I hate that because what that does is, it's just so reductive. It is reductive, and it's basically saying she's not acting. It's not a movie that's about in this way metaphorically about black women having to be nurturers and protectors. And and sort of see the burden that that puts on her in, in performance terms, and that she delivers in a way that generally you didn't expect to see oh, yeah. in it, an action film. But
0: dude, in that one scene where she fucking cons that dealer to take her to the house, you know, where he, she's gonna you know kill the main dealer, and all that sort of. Got, when that guy pulls away to go shoot up in the kitchen, you, that moment, it's like you don't see that shit. You know, that, you know, and, and the integrity of it as a passing moment as being something gritty and fucking horrible before she blows the guy away. Was was kind of mind blowing to me because none of those maybe Panic in Needle Park maybe, but none of those '70s movies you know were 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 that graphic and that visceral and that menacing.
3: But that even Panic gonna... in Needle Park is about you know the antihero circling the drain before he goes down.
0: Sure, but but I'm just talking about graphic heroism. But, but, but I know what you're talking yeah. about too.
3: But I'm also trying to make that parallel that's between right. between what those movies did right. and what those movies left behind. because right. that's an important point to make. Totally, too, and make that, it that, that yeah. those movies sacrifice heroism because it was a luxury that white actors had they played heroes since the beginning of movies so they could say well we're not going to play heroes anymore because we're going to try to wrestle with uh the vietnam war and the impotence this country feels but these movies can't be about vietnam right because then exhibitors won't book them so instead, we'll internalize all that kind of impotence, right. and and make these characters who can't get manage their way through a single day, and they <laughs> turn to heroin. And I'm not saying <laughs> these things aren't issues, yeah. but the fact is that you know, or or Five Easy Pieces, where he just like gets in a truck, like he just like jumps on, jumps on back of the truck and plays the piano, yeah, or yeah, and then he's like in an oil field, you know, the the scion of some rich creative family. I and, mean, that becomes kind of metaphorical for the whole thing, doesn't it? I mean, uh-huh. he leaves he leaves privilege behind uh-huh. to slum and then he goes back to it <laughs> yeah but i mean that that's what the reason i want to make this point was that that these this heroism that american movies have been, always been about that's often been the myth since the beginning yeah people affecting change mm-hmm. and 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 changing things for the better when mainstream movies left those yeah. that behind and, and 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 i'm as big as, as big an admirer of that golden age as anybody The fact is a lot of these movies didn't make money and john Kelly, who read warner brothers in the 70s i was off the job at sony pictures in the early 2000s so i met with him and i said to him, take the job no Uh, what was up development executive like no i i can sleep at night sure and i don't have to say no to people who i'd rather be in business with because the studio didn't want to be in business with them but he said to me i said to him so I have to ask you what you guys paid to make Superfly. You must get this question all the time. Right. And he goes, I said, nobody's ever asked me that question. And it was like $150,000. He said, I could have written a check myself. In retrospect, I probably should have bought it myself and released it. And he said, in terms of return on investment, Superfly was the biggest profit maker he had during his time at Warner Brothers. This is a guy who was there when they made The Exorcist, for God's sake. But, you know, $150,000, back to about $25 million. And he said to me, and this is one of the things that kept bouncing around in my head and led to this getting done. The dirty secret of the American cinema of the 1970s yeah. is that black movies financed it. He said, don't forget MGM was saved from bankruptcy by Shaft. And a lot of these movies made money. We, and he, he said also, and there's other things in the movie too that I wanted to try to make. Because they were floundering. Yeah. because right. And also because if you're an American movie goer and you've been raised on a myth of heroes and you're going to see... The panic in Needle Park. Yeah, you think, you're right. Oh, like, what I the hell is this? I don't. I can step over this in my neighborhood. I don't need to go see the movies. Right. So
0: that. So th- that was the argument that Harris made. That Doolittle was kind of the end of it. You know that they
3: they didn't have they couldn't pick a winner anymore. Even Doolittle wasn't a winner. And no, that's the point what I mean. That he made too is that. They, it's ballot stuffing the reason they got nominated it, it wasn't right. even an honest nomination for Best right. picture it's just that the studio was the system was corrupt enough that you could like create a, a block of studio votes to get an Oscar nomination can I ask him, you an okay? aside real quick?
0: of course uh, don't you want to see a movie about the making of Doolittle?
3: did oh, you read that shit? oh my god, isn't it unbelievable? crazy dude but I asked Pache about it, he goes I don't think that's what happened with me he didn't remember the way Mark has it in the book but that's okay. Well, just in, on, on that island with the bugs, you know, trying to get that thing done with Drunk Rex Harrison. It's fucking crazy. Drunk Angry Rex Harrison. Yeah, and his yeah. ex girlfriend. Right. Like, oh it's it's it really is like a, a restoration comedy totally. and, and, a, and a disaster movie simultaneously. Unbelievable. So with uh, with Superfly and
0: Shaft. Now, what you say? What the argument you're making, which I think is great. Is that you know the shift from the antihero? The reaction to the anti- antihero was was
3: like visually and literally black confidence. Absolutely, it's and those characters. That. Yeah, I mean it's it's this, it, even in the case of Superfly, where he's an antihero, he plays it like a hero. Yeah, for sure. And, he, and got a little criticism for that. Got a ton of criticism yeah. for that. And, and it's this thing too, going almost back to the Sydney Poitier thing, where a lot of these movies are criticized by people who didn't see them, and you understand that people are asking for, you know. All kinds of roles will be played. But as so many actors have say during that period, if we aren't making these movies, no movies are being made. And then and, and 1978 proves it. You know, suddenly there are no black movies being made anymore because but, they start making the black action films. But what I was going to say, too, is that getting back to John Kelly's point, you know, and even Ron O'Neill says it in the movie, we played for 20 weeks in Boston and we ran out of black people in three weeks. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so this was, you know, a totally new
0: world. Well, I guess the point is, to me, that black exploitation is in itself as
3: a heading uh, reductive. Completely that. And, yeah. and, and And I don't have an issue with it as a term. It's just that, you know, what it invites people to think. Like, for you, and so many people, you know, they think it's all they, these movies are parody movies. Right. And and they weren't. They, or over the top. They were over the top, but that's okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, is a James Bond movie not over the top? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. is, is 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 a super is a Marvel movie not over the top? And they're all money makers, but these are also movies that are saying, and in, in, they say in the, in the movie, that are about concerns in 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 the cities. You know, yeah. about, about how do you deal with right with with being overrun by by angry landlords or drugs or or crime, black on black crime because the police aren't going to come help you. And these movies are uh, attempting to answer those questions in these ways that really are about a kind of American tradition of myth, of heroes stepping up. But the other advantage they had too, and this is by sheer inadvertence, yeah, is these soundtracks being released. First. Well, that's yeah, that was like to me like you know the
0: seizing of uh, and and creating a new business model, right? But the the thing that was really provocative and, and great to know was the connection you made, which I guess. Uh, Isaac Hayes made was that he was inspired by that Sergio Leone film where Her- uh, Henry Fonda plays a heavy for the first time in his career. Was that the... Which was at... Once Upon a time, time, time in, in the West.
3: West. I remember this... And this all these building blocks that made this movie. I go to Sundance for the first time in 99. I never want to go to Sundance. Yeah. I care less. But I'm I'm, I'm invited to be on the jury, so I go, I'll do that. And so I get dragged, shanghaied into... Dragooned into this dinner. Not this dinner, but this filmmaker's lunch. Yeah. And... and The Hughes brothers are there with their film American Pimp. And I'd always wanted to meet them. And it turns out they're from Detroit. And so we left talking. And I say, what I really liked about Dead President is that use of uh, Walk on Bye Bye Isaac Hayes because I'd always thought, and then Albert Hughes says with me, we say in unison, it was stolen from Once Upon a Time in the West. And I thought, I'm not the only person who thinks like this. To have that kind of thing visited upon you. Oh, so it's not just me. It's other people and that's why i thought there had to be an audience for this as a book because i feel like there are too many connections like this that so you're saying that you could hear it in in isaac's song oh my god it's and, like and, enio's soundtrack oh oh my god i got to ask and the unfortunate thing about this taking so long is that so many people died like yeah, Isaac yeah. Hayes said he wanted to do yeah, it yeah. and i asked him about this when i met him he goes oh my god he said and i wish we could have got him saying this i think we were eight notes shy of being actionable it was. I thought it was like hilarious, but he knew what he was doing. But I said, right. I said, but also, that feels like the baton being passed. He goes, absolutely. He said, if I hadn't done Walk On By, Gordon Parks doesn't hear that song and think, that sounds like a piece of movie music. I'm going to get this guy to do Shaft. Which then, becomes this other whole kind of thing where that opening of Shaft is so revolutionary. And one of the things I was hoping I could do with this is to sort of let people know what it was like where all these drums were being bought, dropped one after another. That's why, for me, and you tell me if I succeed in this. I want every five minutes a movie for you to go. What? Yeah, for sure. What? Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, it's just it's just a history. And well, it's kind but of also, anyway. well, that
0: was the, the big turn was you, you know the the argument uh, for these black leads. Are uh, uh, as a reaction to the antiheroes, you know, in, in terms of their. But then again, but, but we, I distracted you from the the conversation about how you know releasing the soundtracks first became publicity for the movie and the the artists like Mayfield and Earth Wind and Fire and 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 uh, you know Aretha Franklin and, who, and the others
3: were already established artists, so it was kind of a new business model, it, a business model that changes the movies because then we go from that to Saturday Night Fever, which is also released early right i remember that the soundtrack. In high school. the soundtrack came out early well th- this is
0: but th- this is sort of interesting because it's always been the issue uh and and you know most of the doc is 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 sort of uh, indicting it but it, again you know after you talk about after the arc of the 70s and you were able to source Tony Gennaro's, you know, to, to, is that his last name? To Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever walking down the street. Tony Manero. Tony Manero, you know, at, walking down the street as being a direct sort of lift of Richard Roundtree in the first Shaft movie that, you know, that they co-opted the confidence of these black leads who were working against the anti-hero and and uh, appropriated it, all of it, the whole model for, for Saturday Night Fever. That, well, that's new information.
3: Again, to me, it's just, maybe this is like the proto moment of being the Hughes brothers and Sundance, but yeah. I've seen this movie and my friends and we kind of look at each other and go, isn't this Shaft? Uh-huh. You can't, if you're a black person, right. Shaft had only been f- six years early. You can't look and go, isn't this Shaft? Right. Isn't this like the same key? But then he takes these
0: white guys who play disco music or weren't even disco music before that. And it, like the whole thing is exactly the, the problem in a way, but yet you love
3: the movie. Listen, I think that, I, I, of course I do. And, and and the point I try to make in, in the movie is that if you're a black person, a person yeah. of color, right. it's hard to love pop culture if it doesn't love you back. But that's kind of the story about being a black person in America, isn't it? Right. right, okay. And, 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 but that business model does become the way of the world. I mean, by the 80s, the soundtrack is the way the movie is sold. You yeah. know that's part of the rise of MTV. Right, is these music videos that are songs from the soundtrack. Oh, that's true. That then are so. I mean, With that be- bits from the movies. Yes, absolutely. And major artists doing these songs. Yeah. That becomes the way that movies are sold for a long time. Yeah. And and this all started in the seventies. And I just like this. Uh, we've got to. I've got to draw attention to this. Uh huh. And because it, it feels crazy to me yeah. that it hasn't been. And I think it's. But again, it's, it's this uh, this this reduction of black culture. And, and what I say in the film is that a de facto underground economy and cultural movement because it wasn't like it wasn't successful. It just wasn't being covered. And then, right. and, and, and then when it was being covered, it was like all these sort of pieces about black exploitation and what that was doing. It fucked my head up.
0: It, like it framed it uh, in, improperly to me, you know, to the point where I didn't, you know, investigate more because I thought it was because I don't love camp. You know what I don't. You know what I
3: mean? Sure. I mean, and, and and I think a lot of people sort of thought that these movies probably felt not dissimilar to the ways that African Americans have been treated in film before, which is to say, turned into a joke. Mm. So why go? But you see the opening of Shaft and I just did a thing at Indie Memphis, uh, where Willie Hall lives, who's the drummer in the barcase. Yeah. So that's him doing those 16ths in Shaft. Yeah. And I said to him, it felt always felt to me like you guys are doing a little bit of Peter Gunn, but also a little bit of Norman Whitfield. He goes, It's exactly that. Yeah. I yeah, said, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I said, but also too, you can hear like the backbeat, you can hear the bass drum, you can hear the snare. Whenever there's a footfall by Richard Roundry, yeah. it's following he goes, absolutely. He said, Isaac Hayes bought me a metronome and put it in my hotel room so I would fall asleep at night seeing the clicking in, in, for a click track. Yeah. And so he said, I, by the time we got to the studio, I didn't have to look up. I could hear the click and know exactly where the, and Isaac said, don't look at that screen, just play, because you, if you're following the click, you're playing along to his footfalls. And that's the same thing that's happening in Saturday Night Fever. In fact, when I saw that Bee Gees documentary earlier, I went, yeah. how do you not mention this? Right. How do you not say this? Yeah, because you had to. <laughs> you're, you're the guy. Thank you, thank yeah. you for my documentary. This go really, going up against Wakanda forever, so nobody's going to see it.
0: Well, look, man. I mean, it, the, the, it, it's it, being the guy that makes the connections and and sort of uh, you know presents, reframes history. I mean, this is an issue. Like I talked to Gates about this too. That you know you're literally. With Gates' uh, you, you know, uh, documentary on PBS about you, you know the the black business community, is that and not unlike you, sadly, you know these are these are lessons that are actually being recontextualized and banned in schools in red states. That it's not it's 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 black history that should be human history that we all should sort of understand and know. And we're living in a time where if you don't if you're in the arts and you're not fighting the good fight, then it's all lost. Whether it's Wakanda Forever or not, you know, that Wakanda Forever doesn't exist without what you're talking about in your documentary. They should be showing it first at the theater.
3: Speak louder. No, I mean, my, my hope is that FFP we get tired of seeing Wakanda Forever for the 19th time that weekend because probably everybody's going to go out this weekend. You come home and you turn on Netflix and you go, oh, 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 because in fact, I had a show on Epics and I would go around to towns with the filmmakers and I did one with Brian Coogler yeah. and I showed him the beginning of The Learning Tree yeah. and all the things we're talking about here I was saying to him he goes oh my god I didn't yeah. know any of this yeah. stuff but I also like there's just so many moments in the doc you
0: know, where you know, your reaction as a younger person to, to uh, Isaac Hayes on the Academy Awards playing that song with those chains and you realizing that he's, re,
3: he's owning these things and, and, and fuck youing them I mean the see yeah. Isaac for me, the moment and I mentioned this in the doctor, I'm glad you brought this up. See Isaac Hayes wearing chains, not around his wrists, but around his torso. Yeah. And to be playing that song, it's like for me, I just As thought, a look. Oh my God. Yeah. But I mean, but he had that look with the seat on national television. Yeah. yeah. The fact that Shaft's success made that Isaac Hayes inescapable. And I thought this is the beginning of a, of a new world, and that's the year of Superfly and Lady Sings the Blues and Sounder, and you got. And I was just thinking, oh my God, because I would compare Curtis Mayfield to John Williams. He did five scores, yeah. during that period. Yeah, in addition to doing fifteen other albums, so he made twenty records. So good, but the soundtracks he made are Let's Do It Again, Claudine, Sparkle, yeah, and Superfly. Almost all those songs live on one way or another. In fact, John Kelly said to me, The great thing about the Superfly soundtrack is that every single that came off of that was a hit. So it kept the movie alive.
2: In right. addition to it coming
3: out the month before, right. it wasn't just, it just a song was a hit. You know, there's Give Me Your Love, there's Freddy's Dead, there's Superfly. Yeah. These things that that the album generated so many hit singles. Yeah. It kept the movie alive. Yeah. That had never happened before. He said, You might have the case of and I make this this point of a Noah's Tresley movie or a Beatles movie, but those people were acts, pop acts, and yeah. that didn't translate into the entire culture, and oftentimes, you know, people go see the movies and roll their eyes. You have this thing that like Curtis Mayfield did as a composer and a songwriter, where he would write in character... You may have had this thing happen to you, too. I know so many people who've heard a Superfly soundtrack who've never seen the movie, yeah. who've imagined the movie yeah. based on the song, Sure, and the cover of the album. The cover of the album, but also the song. Yeah, sure. Like each song has a different tempo, yeah. a different feel to it. Yeah. They're all about these states of mind these characters are experiencing. Yeah. you know, uh, Deep. Freddie's dead or, or Eddie, you should have know better. Each, each one of these songs. Has a, a feel that feels like uh, that has the sort of the, the emotional weight of character yeah, expression yeah, to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that that not had not really been done before. I can't think of another person who composed a soundtrack in that way. It's yeah. also this thing too, where before he started doing these soundtracks, it's clearly Curtis Mayfield had the impact and the influence on Marvin Gaye, who turns into this this social activist yeah. slash songwriter. They've sing singing in the song register. They're both singing falsetto. yeah. And then so suddenly you could go from Curtis Mayfield to Marvin Gaye What's Going On, then to Superfly, then to Marvin Gaye doing the Trouble Man soundtrack. That's interesting because Marvin really wasn't doing falsetto before that, was he? And that was his natural register. Hmm. But Barry Gordy told him it wasn't masculine, so he didn't sing it. At it. Hmm. And that's t- Marvin hearing... Um, I don't know who knows this. Well, then,
0: but then after these '70s movies, you kind of point out which were the later '70s that there was definitely mainstream movies. "Lady in the Blues," "Mahogany," Cooley High," uh, the 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 one you just mentioned with the um, with the uh, the singers that didn't really do that well. "Sparkle," which is basically "Dream Girls" before "Dream Girls." And and so that becomes sort of b- bingo along and Traveling All-Stars which I remember the
3: Belafonte uh, Bill Cosby movies which I remember well, there that, was there that, a few that, of those well, those are movies that saved Sidney Poitier's career and this is the, the most amazing thing yeah. I, like I was saying I was trying to figure out a way to deal was with it was it Uptown Saturday Night? that was the first one yeah but Sidney Poitier went from being the biggest thing in the world in 1968 yeah. to because of the way the culture has shifted being irrelevant by 1970. Yeah. In 2 years to have that kind no kidding. Of, that that kind first of all the a build of roughly 20 years uh-huh. to get where he was. Yeah. And then have this all of this fall apart in the course of 2 years and then to reinvent himself and to start doing comedy and to make himself this not not the comedian but the straight man and to make fun of what people thought Sidney Poitier was in these movies and to become a movie star again based on that i cannot think of any other case in the history of the movies where somebody has had that kind of foresight and understanding of audience and of, of self awareness to rescue himself from obscurity name it not obscurity yeah but no, like no, but no, no 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 he fallen no obscurity. no he had but but i'm saying like
0: de niro did it a little bit but De uh, with, was,
3: but De was always getting off. Yeah, he, yeah he was not. Yeah, Nure, he wasn't no, obscure. No, nobody but, called
0: Niro a sellout and a joke. That's right. But nope. he did end up doing some pretty goofy
3: shit, and it was kind of oh, great he, to he see. He flipped his career around, yeah. but he wasn't the architect. That's of right. It. That's right. Puente goes, and and again, when I met, I, I, out I, of this, necessity, I met. Well, you know, of course he did. I mean, yeah. the same reason he doing Lilies of the Field out of necessity, because if he doesn't do it, it's not going to get made. How do you further the cause of black actors? Mm. I mean, because again, it's it's. It's a tricky position that he was in. Wasn't Belafonte in Uptown Saturday Night too? He is. He played the heavy, right? Yeah, he is a small. He's basically doing this parody of The, of Godfather. the Godfather. Yeah, right. Because He studied with. Ronald I remember loving those movies, but they're they're like they're full of these great little performances. And there's so many people. I wish I had a chance to get in this movie because they passed away. There's an actor named Roscoe Lee Brown. Yeah, I remember him. Who's in Uptown? He Saturday has I, He has that voice. This yeah. great voice. We yeah, also yeah. has this thing where. Just before the, that scene we have, that, that the scene that's in the movie, he's this this elected official. He's trying to figure out which fake pose. Does he want to be a man of the people and where's his dashiki? Or does yeah. he want to be upright and wear his suit and tie? Right. And so he's got all these, 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 these portraits that he flips around in his office and just seeing him shift from one thing to another. But he's also in... He's an uptight of uh, playing this gay character, this unapologi- unapologetically gay character. I mean, Roscoe worked a ton. I wished that he lived long enough for me to talk to him for this. There's, I mean, I knew Rudy Ray more, and I wish I'd been able to get him. I mean, my first brush with fame in 1975, a friend of mine and I are walking around downtown Detroit trying to figure out what to do to get out of the heat, and we see this little guy walk past us wearing a leather hat, a leather jacket, yeah. with a matching bag and shoes. And in Detroit in 1975, nobody would dress like that. So I just thought, this guy must be an actor. I don't know how I thought this. And so I go, wait... Are you Durville Martin? He goes, you guys know who I am? <laughs> we go, yeah. And he goes, you want to come see my movie? We go, okay. Now, this would be the point where he throws us in the back of a panel truck and we never <laughs> heard from him again. Hey, yeah. He walks us around the corner to this movie theater where Dolomite is playing, yeah. which he has directed. He walks past the ticket taker and goes, it's okay, these guys are with me. And the guy's looking at him like, and who are you? <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. walks us in, sits down, okay, guys, Enjoy. And that's how I saw Dolomite. Wow. And we sat through it four times. So yeah. we basically sat there until like kicked us out of the room. We were reciting the dialogue along with the actors really yeah, for so yeah. long. And then I got to meet Rudy, Rudy Ray Moore. because I was there. You should. No, I didn't know you. but Yeah. Because whatever else Dolomite is about, he understood as it's as a performer, Rudy Ray Moore, yeah. how to make an entrance. Yeah, And so many of these movies were about entrances, huh. which is this thing that movies, American movies do better than anybody, is people making an entrance. You think about Marlena Dietrich or, uh-huh. or, 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 or all these these glamour entrances. Uh-huh. And Billy Dee Williams gets one and Lady mm-hmm. Sings the Blues. And there's so many because they remind us of the glory and the power of wanting to see something different from our own lives. Yeah. And and that's what a lot of these black movies did too. They offer glamour and heroism when that was no longer in fashion in fact I think they brought that stuff back into fashion and then were swept off to the margins because that's what always happens in black culture well yeah and you, you sort of uh, that you kind of blame the whiz a little bit I don't blame the whiz but I think the whiz was blamed yeah I think the you know I see so they, they said this tank we're done with black people because the point I make in the movie is that yeah. you know, it, may be, it got bad reviews but so did coffee a lot of these movies got bad reviews mm-hmm. I, I, but the Wiz didn't make money that's the thing. that The Wiz really didn't make money. <laughs> yeah. The Wiz, and I, mean, I had an executive say to me once The Wiz was like the black version of Heaven's Gate. I mean, it lost a ton of money, and there were a lot yeah. of expectations about it. Yeah. But, you know, should the guy who directed Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon be. Yeah, I don't know how it? that happened. What's the backstory on that? You don't know? Why did he take that gig? Uh, because the guy who was supposed to do it, John Batham, was apparently fired after Saturday Night Fever. That was so he's doing be his next someone thing. a favor? Uh, well, they were going to make the movie, and he thought, you know, I can do this. Yeah. Um, I think he was wrong, but he thought I can do this and probably thought I want to do something different. But John Badham who was supposed to do it, had that objection. He said, I think this is great, but I think Dinah Ross is too old and they went Yeah. And then he was done and Sydney LeBet thought, I can make this work. They could use Janet, but she was too young probably then. She's well, way too young, but they could use Stephanie Mills who had been in the, the show on Broadway. True. But they wanted to do it with a star and you know, it was a miscalculation, the kind of thing that happens a lot, but When a black movie fails, it's the end of all black movies, and also all black movies are the same. Yeah, Black movies are a genre, so if it's a black comedy, it's a black movie. If it's a black Western, it's a black movie. If it's a black romantic melodrama, it's a black movie. So when it fails, it's not a Western failing. It's black movies failing. Yeah. It's not a romantic comedy failing. It's black movies failing. And by the way, when these movies fail in the mainstream, they eventually bounce back. We're hearing about the end of the romantic comedy until... The George Clooney, Julie Roberts movie is a success. So suddenly they're back. Yeah. But I like how you sort of set up that after that, the Wiz, you know, and then you sort of
0: sort of uh, focus on the new kind of black independent cinema. You start talking about, you know, Charles Barnett, and, and who's a genius. Oh my God, a poet. He's yeah. A poet. I mean, I remember seeing that movie. When did it come out? like it, in 80 78
3: it, it, it came out in 78 but it, it wasn't it didn't get a real release until like the late 80s
0: yeah cuz i saw it and i didn't know what it was and i saw it, i don't remember where i was maybe i was still in college is that possible like mid to late 80s and i remember going to see it cuz it looked interesting <laughs> and it was you know it's an unforgettable movie and i had no idea how to contextualize it yeah, but other than just watching it as a movie. Like I didn't know who Charles Barnett was, but I became fascinated with him, but I didn't know where to find any of his other stuff. And it's sort of an interesting story, right? There's it's not a, a lot there. It's a great story. Sh- here's short the, films.
3: I mean, no, he's not he did uh um um To Sleep with Anger. Oh, he that's right,
0: the, To Sleep with Anger. The that's, Glass Shield. That's fucking that movie's great. That's a Danny Glover movie? That's fucking that movie's insane, dude.
3: Isn't it? Yes. And and but don't you love the story he tells about showing his movie at UCLA and all these flowered children finding themselves and smoking drugs? He goes, no, that was in my neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And because he makes uh. this movie about black life where the father is there. And it's a movie about love. I mean, you, you see that, that man looking at his daughter and his son and his wife and going out and basically crushing his soul to make a living. Yeah. But being in that neighborhood and being a part of something. Right. I mean, that is... You couldn't make, make that movie today because people wouldn't know how to do it with the kind of deafness and poetic touches that that Beautiful. has. And again, the movie's still being imitated into the 21st That's century. That's right. You were
0: able to track all the influence that movie had.
3: Oh, my God. you could have done, I could have done a whole movie on that. Yeah. With all the people who were stolen from him. But you know, I felt it was kind of great to go from that to then Martin Scorsese. The Shutter Island. But, yeah, d- direct lift. But that was an homage. I mean, you Co- framed it like that. No, I'm not trying to say he's, he's still... Not, it's completely an homage yeah. from Scorsese. He wouldn't know that. But, you know, it's... And that's the only clip I have from the 21st century because I could have done the same thing with um, um, American Gangster. Yeah. Which lifts stuff from um, um, Gordon's War, those women, like, cutting oh, up yeah, the coke. Oh, yeah, all that
0: stuff. Yeah, the cutting up the coke thing. And I don't quite understand, like, one thing that's, like, sticking in my craw. about What's that? They, well, the... It's weird because, you, you know, Sydney and uh, Harry make that Western, you know, as, as a, a reaction to Butch and Sundance, right? Like, I don't under—like, the Western thing, the ongoing sort of obsession with it and need to regenerate it, you know, for every generation over and over again to lesser and lesser success, I don't understand it.
3: I don't understand why there's a need to own that fucking genre. I think it's the, the one thing that feels really intrinsically American because, you know, a lot of comedy, that sort of stage play aspect was lifted from European art. The Western feels like something that belongs to this country. Yeah. And it's also about this aspect of the still the wide open spaces. Yeah. There's romance about it that people love. I'm, I'm not so in love with it either. I was actually fonder of the stuff that sort of like flipped over in his head, like Once Upon a Time in the West and those kinds of yeah. things. Yeah. I, I get that. But I also get to that if you if you grew up a certain way of a certain generation, the Western meant something to you, and to not see yourself in. You know, I mean, Fishburne talks about going with his father. Yeah, and the two Westerns I chose for that clip were The Searchers and Nevada Smith because they're yeah. both about race. Yeah, and also yeah. having them be framed in the doorway. I thought. I mean, that was the fun of making this is I got to like do be really deliberate about all the clip choices. That was the fun of it. Yeah, it really, shocked me about how much fun sh- that was.
0: That that moment in in the searchers where John Wayne's gonna kill the girl because she's now uh, you know with them. It's a fucking
3: devastating moment. But I don't have the whole movie, so I got to just have that doorway. I get you. And also in Nevada Smith, he's supposed to be part Native American, but he's also losing his life, losing everything around him. That doorway frame. I just thought. Yeah. If, we're gonna, if I'm gonna deal with a Western, I'm gonna deal with a Western that deals with race in that way. Well, that's I mean, I look, I mean,
0: like even this conversation, I mean, there's so much more in the dock, and it was uh, you know, like again, I, I had
3: to watch it twice. It wasn't you re- like you really did. I did, yeah. I'm touched by that, man. That means a lot to me. Did doesn't you. it sound like I did? It certainly sounds like you paid attention. <laughs> I, I, I was I went for you you could get that from a single viewing, but I'm I'm clearly impressed. I mean, we know each other for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we never really had this kind of conversation no, before. No, sir. And, yeah. and, and now I'm sir, okay? That's how long we know each other. I'm yeah. not sir in the conversation. But yeah. this, is, this has been really fun just because I couldn't imagine that you would pay this kind of attention to something that I it did. It's shocking to me.
0: Well, I, I, I think it's great, and, I, and I, hope it, uh, I hope it gets seen a lot, and it was great talking to you. Always. Thank you so much, Mark. That was Elvis Mitchell a fellow broadcaster and uh, now filmmaker and the movie is is called is that black enough for you it's streaming on netflix and uh it's it's great so hang out a second okay if you want to check out an episode from the archives this week it was six years ago that i went out to new jersey to interview bruce springsteen it's episode 773 and it's available in all podcast feeds for free. It's definitely a great episode if you're a Bruce fan and a great episode if you're a fan of this show, because it's a full-fledged WTF interview. We get into everything, including what he was thinking at the time about Trump's election and a lot of what he said uh, actually could be said word for word today. What's your biggest fear of it as we enter it?
1: I suppose would be that. uh, uh a lot of the worst things and the worst aspects of what he appealed to comes to fruition, mm. you know? Uh, when you let that genie out of the bottle, bigotry, uh, racism, uh, when you let those things out of the bottle, they intolerance. don't... Intolerance. Yeah, intolerance. They don't go back in the bottle that easily if they go back in at all. Right. You know, whether it's a rise in hate crimes people feeling they have license to speak and behave in ways that previously were considered un-American and are un-American. Uh, that's what he's appealing to. And so my fears are that those things find a place in ordinary civil society demeans the uh, discussions and events of the day and the country changes in a way that is unrecognizable, and we become estranged. As you say, you say, "Hey, I, well, wait a minute! You voted for Trump. I, I, I thought I knew who you were. You know, I'm not sure. You know, the country feels very estranged. You feel very estranged from your countrymen. You know. Yeah.
0: Go listen to that in the same feed you're listening to this episode. And if you want all the WTF episodes ad free. Sign up for WTF Plus by going to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF Plus. On Monday show, we've got my talk with comedian Tommy Tiernan that I recorded in Ireland. Uh, Tommy and I have been sort of orbiting each other at festivals for, for decades, it seems. Uh, you know, and I've watched him do stand up a few times and I sort of got up to speed with him because he is a, a huge uh, comedian. Uh, in Ireland and the UK, uh, he's been here in the states a few times, and it was I. I really sometimes I really like you know knowing somebody and knowing their work a bit, but then sort of having to sit there and really dive in to uh to to you know who they are and 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 more of their work. And I didn't really. I'm I'm sad now because we didn't really talk about the Dairy Girls. You know, which is a show that he is in, and it's a huge show. And Kit uh, has been watching it and loves it. And I, you know, I, I think that was sort of a blind side of that interview. But it was great to talk to him. Now, this is usually where I give you uh, my upcoming tour dates, but I don't have any more. After tonight, I'm done. But between us, I'm I'm sure I'll be at the comedy store, probably all the time. Here's some guitar from the vault.